Hey, by the way, uh, I've been designing these so you guys just a little bit different in that you've got a section here, the study guide that you are, it's designed for you to follow along with us in here. But I also have a personal reflection side. This is designed for you to be able to take it home and for you to be able to think about the lesson, think about some practical questions that may rise out of the time we spend uh, and maybe for you to consider, maybe for you to think about, jot down your ideas, thoughts about it. Maybe look in the scripture and find the answers. So I hope you take advantage of that, not only the study guide that we have and use in here, but even maybe the personal reflection that you can take with you. All right, so we are going to be jumping into the book of Nehemiah again. So you will need to open up to Nehemiah. And I will remind you of where we have come so far. Nehemiah was exiled. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And if we were in children's church, I'd say, now say Artaxerxes three times fast, but you guys don't have to do that. Some of you decided to do it anyway. Did anybody get it out there perfectly? Did anybody struggle? All right. Did you struggle or got it out there perfect? Perfectly, perfectly. Listen, the fact that you guys said y'all did it perfectly means I don't believe you did it perfectly at all, okay? Not even came close to it, all right? So he was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he heard about uh, how the walls at Judah were broken down. Now, that's a bad deal. You had uh, some people who'd already gone ahead who had built back up the temple, they had taken the law back to Judah. They were trying to get people back to where they needed to be with the Lord. So what was the deal with the wall? Why is that such a big deal? Well, it was a big deal because all the work they had tried for and strived for, if they don't have a wall to protect them, then all of a sudden someone else can run in there and they can just tear down and get rid of everything they've worked so hard to regain. So he was upset, he was saddened, the king saw him saddened, asked him, why are you saddened? And Nehemiah had an answer and Nehemiah had a faith that took him to where he could talk to King Artaxerxes. That's a big deal because you didn't just talk to a king about what makes you sad. He's the cupbearer, which means he's there when the parties are going on and if you mess up the king's good time, that could be a bad day for you. I'll give you, how many of y'all ever saw The Emperor's New Groove? Did y'all ever see that old Disney movie? All right, so what does he say when he's over there dancing at the beginning and then he runs that old guy? Do you remember what he says? What was that? He says, you threw off my groove. Do you remember that? He says, I'm sorry, you've thrown off the king's groove. And then they throw him out the window. All right, now that's a silly and exaggerated uh, uh, illustration, but it maybe helps you understand if you mess up the king's uh, celebrations or if you bring his mood down, you could be killed. But because Nehemiah had thrown himself upon the grace of God, he had thrown his life before the grace of God, he had faith that what God had called him to do, he could speak to King Artaxerxes about it, and he did. And King Artaxerxes heard him, and he allowed him 
to have the letters, the, the people, the armies, all those things to go and to get this wall built. So that was Nehemiah 1 and 2. And we're really going to hit, we're really going to focus on chapters 3 and 4. But understand, the narrative we're going to talk about today goes all the way through chapter 6. All right, so we're not going to focus on all of it because there's just too much breadth to work on. But as we're going through Nehemiah, we're also taking time to look at five major, and I mean big, huge things that we have to believe about God, about His Son Jesus, about who He is, about His Word. They're commonly known as the solas. Alright? You've got sola gracia, which means grace alone. Nehemiah threw himself before grace alone. You've got, does anyone remember what it was? Sola. Uh, Yeah, do you remember what, yeah, and that's, it's sola, but do you remember what the Latin term was for it? Sola. It's okay, sola fide. Means faith alone. Because Nehemiah had thrown himself upon the grace of God, he had faith to pursue and to follow after him. Normally, from there it goes solus Christus. What do you think that would mean? Christ alone. Anytime you hear sola, that means alone. Or solus or soli. From there you'd go to sola scriptura. What do you think that means? Scripture alone. And that was the one that we said like literally like just like like not even 30 seconds ago. You're a little late to the table, but that's okay. And the fifth one, the last one is Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. So what do you think that means? What? What? So wait, I'm going to do an impression of Nora. What do you think that means? And here goes Nora. And then I'll say, what was that? <laughs> that's, that's, that's my impression of Nora. So I'll give you a really big hint. Soli Deo Gloria. It's right there on the screen. The glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. I, I really want to believe that you were like so close to it. But all I got out of it was... <laughs> that's all I got alright so next time I'll try really hard to, to get that first part maybe that's what it is maybe that's what it is alright so we're going to be talking about the glory of God alone the glory of God alone to the glorification of God alone now there's some Christianese in there and what I mean by Christianese is We hear these words a whole lot, but so many times we don't take time to understand what they mean. Which is why, as we've moved through it, I've asked, what does grace mean? And you guys learned what grace meant. What does faith mean? And we learned what faith meant. Those can sometimes be thought of as Christianese. They're words that we're familiar with, but we don't know what they mean And here's another one, the glory of God alone, glorifying God alone. So the first question right there on your study guide, and if you came up through Children's Church with me, you should know this answer. But what does it mean to glorify 
God. What does that mean? To make God famous. What does it mean to glorify God? We are to make God famous. Now that's a big deal. Making God famous. Glorifying God alone. Making His fame all that we talk about. All that we communicate. All that we strive for. To glorify God alone. Making God famous alone. What does it mean to make someone famous? <laughs> let's, use, let's not use the word glorify. To, 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 to make him known. Popular. Those are some things that we, under, we understand. Fame, we understand being famous. Who is a, who's a famous person that you guys respect and like? There's a lot of people that are famous right now, okay? There's a lot of people who are famous right now. Right now, listen, right now the two most talked about names, the two most famous names in the whole country are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Those are the two most famous names in all the country right now, okay? So we understand what it means to be famous. We understand that term. So if we're looking at what does it mean to glorify God, it means to make God famous. It means that what we are desiring to do is we are desiring to make God known. We want Him to be uh, popular and talked about. We want Him to be uh, the big deal. We want Him to be what everyone focuses on. What does it mean to glorify God? To make God famous. And, and let, me, let me say this. When we jump into Nehemiah 3 and 4, and we talk about 5 and 6 a little bit, you're going to see how they make God famous, how they glorify God. And it's a really, really cool and interesting thing to dive into. But before we get there, I want to ask you this. If our goal... If our desire, if the solo we're talking about tonight for us and from Nehemiah, if it is that we are to glorify God alone, to bring glory to God alone, that's our main call, that's the big deal, that's our chief task. What is, what is God's chief task? What is God's goal? And we can't really talk about it in terms of goals and tasks, but if we, if we just throw human kind of understanding to it, what is the number one priority of God in this world? Love. Huh? Love. Love. Grace. Grace. Faith. Mercy. Faith. Hope. Hope. I'm going to submit this to you that God is very interested in all those things very very interested in all those things but the thing that God is most interested in 
the thing that is his top priority, the thing he wants most, is the same thing that he has for us. What he wants is to be made famous. What he wants is to be glorified. What he wants is to be exalted and praised and a high and big deal. I'll prove it to you real quick. Uh, we're going to open up to John 17. When, actually, let me get someone to open up to John 17, 1 through 5. Someone, someone open up to John 17, 1 through 5. Casey? Someone get 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I see your hand in there. And you want Isaiah 43, 6 or 7? <clears throat> And we understand that people, we were created to glorify God. People were created to glorify God. God's chief interest is to glorify God. And we're going to prove it from these verses. And these are not the only verses that prove it, but these are some very interesting verses. And I'm actually going to go out of order. I want the John 17 to be the last one. So let me start with the 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. How on earth can you eat and drink to the glory of God? Let me tell you about a wonderful date night I had with, with my bride. It was, uh, we went to a new restaurant. Now, she loves Thai food. She loves it. Thinks it's just great. And there's one Thai restaurant that she uh, prefers above all, Surin 280. All right, but she found out that one of the chefs or one of the owners or the managers or something like that from Surin 280 he left Surin 280, and he came and he opened up his own little restaurant in uh, the strip mall on Highway 11 where the Winn-Dixie is and the UPS are. And so she finds out about it. We go to this restaurant. And she's looking at the menu, and all of her favorite things from Surin 280 are on this menu too because it's a guy who came from Surin 280. So she doesn't order one thing. She doesn't order two things. She gets three things. All right, and, and they bring it out to her, and, and she knows she's going to be taking this box home, but she decides we're just going to go for it right here and right now, and I'm going to see if it compares, all right, if it's, if it's as good as the Surin 280 stuff. Now, it was just she and I in the restaurant and the, the people who worked there. If it wasn't just she and I, understand, I would have been so embarrassed because this is what happens. You're not going to get this term because you're not old enough to get it, but she what about Bob's that meal? All right? Mr. Brad probably gets that. This is what she does. When she takes a bite, and when she puts it in her mouth, she goes, Mmm. Oh, that's so good. And then she takes a bite of something else. And you know what she does? Oh, mmm. Mmm, that's so good. I'm sitting there, I'm like, stop it. That's embarrassing. Quit it. And then she'd take a bite of something else, and the same thing. Mmm. Oh, this is just like Surin 280. 
Stop it, please. You're embarrassing me, and there's no one to embarrass me in front of. And the people back there in the kitchen who are working, they're looking over at Miss Crystal, and they're, they're going... <laughs> and then, yeah, then, man, what'd you put in that? I don't know. You're just... When we eat and drink and whatever we do to the glory of God, it's not what about bobbing a meal, and that comes from a, a movie where a character does that as he's eating a, a, a meal with a family. He makes those noises, and it's really silly and funny. So it's not that we what about bob a meal, and we, we're not doing it about, man, that chicken was awesome. Thank you, God, for allowing me to eat such a wonderful chicken. It's not that. But we should praise God, thank God. We should live our lives in such a way that even in the way we eat and drink and whatever we do, it's glorifying God. We were created to glorify God. What about Isaiah 43, 6 and 7? Those who he has formed and made, those who he has called to be his own, they are created for his glory. That's what God wants from his creation. He wants them to glorify him. They were created for that. But what about God? You mean that God wants to glorify himself? That sounds kind of arrogant. Let's, let's look at John 17. One through five. And you had that one, right, Casey? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him glory over all flesh, to give eternal life to all who he gave him. And this eternal life that they know through you, only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, have accomplished the work you gave me. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. Now understand, to get this, you've got, to, you've got to recognize who Jesus is. Jesus is God the Son. He's praying to God the Father. And what does He say? What is the first sentence out of His mouth? Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. God, glorify God. God the Father, glorify God the Son. And then he says, I, this is verse 4, glorified you on earth. I, God, glorified God. God is interested in his glory. Does that make him arrogant? Does that make him egotistical? Kayla, if... You said the number one priority of your life was to glorify yourself. We would look at you and say that's an arrogant thing, right? If Mr. Brad did it, we would say that's an arrogant thing. If any of us did it, that's an arrogant thing. So is it an arrogant thing to say that God desires to glorify himself, that the number one, the chief end, the chief desire of God is to glorify himself? Is that a problem? Does that make God arrogant? 
No, I see no, but why? Right, he, he doesn't sin, so it can't be wrong, but why is it that it's not wrong? Say it again. He forgave our sins, absolutely he did. But even, even there's even a step before that even. He made us, and there's even, a, there's even maybe a step before that. Think about it like this. If, if, if you look at, Kayla, why would it be wrong for you, to des, for you to desire your own fame and your own glory above God's? Why would it be wrong for you to desire your fame above God's? Because you don't deserve it. You are not perfect. You are not righteous. You are not holy. You are not any of those things on your own. Is God. Yes. Now, if God were to give top priority to Logan over himself, then God would be an idolater. God would be desiring the pleasures of an idol more than he desires a holy and righteous and good pleasure. Does that make sense? We were created to glorify God. And here's the thing. If we're created to glorify God then we get to see in a remarkable and amazing thing that God has called His people. The people of God are called, and it's going to be up on the screen, they are called to serve Him in unique roles. Not only are you called to glorify Him, but God says, yes, you glorify me, but you get to do it in a way that only you can do. You get to be unique in the way that you glorify me. You get to be your own person. You get to be your own, you get to be your own crea- uh, part of creation. And you get to do that. And you get to do it in your own way. In a way that is wonderful. In a way I've created you for that. Let me start off our reading in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. And these are actually... this. These passages, these verses are actually on your study guide. But it says this, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to him, Zakur, the son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But look at this. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. God called Nehemiah to go rebuild the wall. Nehemiah goes to the people and he says, let's do it. 
Let's put the walls back up so that we can have protection in Judah so that no army can come and destroy the temple again, so that no one can come in and get the law of God and burn it before us again. Let us build the walls so that the things of God may be established and they may be permanent. Let's do that. And the people rallied behind it and said, yes, let's do that. And they start doing it. And the great thing about it is when you walk through and when you read through all these people that do it, you've got some people and they do it in unique ways. Nehemiah was brilliant. He sat there and he said, like, like Casey, you live at this part of the wall. You're going to build the part of the wall that's going to be right outside your house. Eli, you live at this section. You're going to be building the part of the wall that's right outside your house. And he would go down the families and say, you build this part of the wall because it's right there in front of your house. And you had some of the families that would get together and they were young and they were excited. And so they would get up there and man, they would work fast. They would work hard. They would do it for long hours. They would go to work and they would get it done like quick in an instant. And then you had some families where they would get up there and they would say, okay, we're going to take it slow. And they would work and they would diligently put every brick in, pace, in place and make sure that they were level and they would make sure that they were good and they would make sure that they were they were stacking them just right and then sometimes those guys who were working fast they'd say they go man that's an awesome job and they would learn from them and then they would take those lessons and they would say these people over here are struggling so they would go and they'd work over there and they would start building with them everybody had a unique role and a unique function right there in the part that they were most invested in. <clears throat> and God has called us in the same way to serve Him. He has called us to a job. He has called us to do things. And we get to do them in unique ways. Real quickly, we've got some Bible verses to go with that. I need someone to open up to Psalm 96, 1 through 3. I need someone to open up to Isaiah 66, 18 through 19, and 1 Corinthians 12. Who's got the psalm? Who's got the psalm verse? Okay, last, all right. What about Isaiah? You've got it, Amelia. And Anthony, do you want to get the 1 Corinthians? You want to get the 1 Corinthians 12? Thank you, sir. All right, so the people of God are called to serve Him in unique roles. All right? So, go ahead, whenever you are at Psalm 96, 1 through 3, go ahead and read that for me. Declare the works of God. And how does he say to do it? Oh, sing. Not everyone in here can sing. Not everyone in here feels comfortable doing it, doing it. But there are some who that is what they are gifted in doing. They have a unique and a wonderful and a beautiful ability to do that. There are people who are great instrument, uh, instrument players. There are people who love to act. There are people who love to read and to learn so they can share that knowledge. There are people who have all kinds of different unique abilities and not a single one of us in here are exactly alike. And you are called to give your gifts and your talents to the glory of God. What about Isaiah 66, 18 through 19? 
It's okay. I'm not reading along with you, so I don't have the, I don't have the, the next word. There are some people who go and they are called to take the Word of God. They are called to take the message of God to places they've never been. There are some people who are called because they have the ability to, to, to go and to meet new people and make relationships. That's what they're called to do. You might not have that gift, but those who do are called to use that gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, I'll tell you what, bud, just read, um, just for the sake of time, um, I want you just to read verses, I want you just to read verses 4 through 8 for me. All right, so we'll stop right there just for the sake of time. Understand what's going on there is he says, not only are you called to go, but God will gift you in a way that you can do the job that is set before you. And when you look at this, these passages in Nehemiah, you see that these guys put their talents and their gifts. Yes, they're building a wall. And you might sit there and say, well, what's so great about that? But when you look at the way they did it, each of them had a unique role to play, they had a unique section to work on, and they did it in a way that was God-honoring and God-glorifying, and it was unique. It all worked for the same glorifying purpose. But tragically, there is this reality. If the people of God are called to serve Him in unique roles, that's wonderful. But the world, the next section, the world will always, it'll be up on your screen. Isn't that right, Cortland? The world will always oppose the work of God. The world will always... People were created. This, the number two or the number three? Number two, people were created to glorify God. The world will always oppose the work of God. Let me read this to you. Nehemiah 4. Now, when you look at they're building a wall so that they're protected. What is there to be angry about that? You already saw in the verses that we read that there were some who, when they saw the things going on, they looked at it and they said, I'm not going to dare stoop to serve the Lord. I will not dirty my hands or muddy my hands with such lowly work. You need to understand this, that there are some in the church, there are some even in this church, guys, I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but there are several people who sit there and they think that job, that work, that part of the ministry, that's beneath me. 
that's below what I should do. I am better than that. The instant you ever think that the work of God is beneath you, you need to think seriously about how God has called you, about what He's called you to, and you need to reconsider your priorities. One of the worst things I ever had to do, worst thing, I, I, was, I had just become the children's pastor at uh, Centercrest Baptist, and a child went into the bathroom, and that child tore up that bathroom. And do you know who had to clean it up? That would be this guy right here. That was awful. And Cortland, I have still never forgiven you for that. I'm just kidding. It wasn't Cortland. But... And and while I was in there, and here's the thing, while I was in there and while I was having to clean up that mess, someone comes in and says, hey, hey, don't worry about that. Someone else can do it. And I thought, at that time, I said, the second that this job becomes beneath me, I've I've got to to change my occupation. I work with kids. This is just part of the, the natural order of things. Now, understand, you guys are old enough. You guys tear up that bathroom. I ain't doing it for y'all, all right? Not because, it's be- not because it's beneath me, but because you need to learn how to clean up your messes. All right? Now, there are some within the church that think it's beneath me, but not only that, the world itself, the outside forces, will always oppose the work of God. Listen to this. Uh, Nehemiah 4, 6 through 14 says this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were, being, were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. If you go to glorify God, if you go to do the work of God, no matter if it's in the church or out in the community, understand the work of the world is going to oppose the work of God. Every time. 
And what it stirs us to do is what we see here in Nehemiah. It doesn't stir us to back off. It stirs us to say, take up arms because the work we're doing is for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we will do what He has called us to do. It doesn't matter what rises up against us. And there are so many among us who at the first sign of hardship back off. Guys, at this moment right now, the American church is a laughingstock. There's a preacher named Alistair Begg who I love. He's been preaching in the States now, man, 30 years? And he's a missionary to America so that Americans will know the gospel. Paul Washer, another great preacher who I love, he went away on the mission field and when he came back, he looked at the landscape of the American church and he said, this church is broken. It's worse than anything I've seen on the mission field. And we're the ones who say we don't suffer persecution or hardship. We're the ones who get to come into this building. We get to have an open Bible. We get to sing songs of praise. We don't suffer persecution. And yet the moment, the instant that anyone says something against Christianity, we back off like a bunch of cowards. You do it as well as I. And the reality is we haven't even begun to see how bad it can be. You want to see persecution. You want to see it get hard. Go talk to someone living in China right now. Go talk to some Nigerians over there who are suffering for the kingdom of Christ. Go talk to people who are living in places where it is against the law to own a Bible and ask them what it looks like. When persecution comes, when the world comes up against God, what do they do? They don't back down. They take up arms and they say, the work of my God is more precious than whatever this world can do against me. And you need to understand something. That America lives right now in a time where we have no persecution or we have very little. But it's not always going to be like that. I fear that my little girl and my little boy are going to be told in their lifetime. Close that Bible and stay out of the churches. We're already being told that. We're being told that because of a pandemic now and, and we understand that there's crazy circumstances. We're already being told that. The world will always oppose the work of God. We're not going to look up all these verses, but I want you to write them down. And I want you to understand, I'm, I'm just going to read to you John 15. I want you to understand that if you set in your mind, if you set as your priority to glorify God and to glorify Him alone, like Nehemiah did, like the Israelites did back then, you're not going to go up there and just find an easy path or an easy walking lifestyle. That's not going to happen. Jesus Himself tells us this in John 15 
18 through 25, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hate Jesus. Understand, the world will always hate Jesus. They'll hate Jesus while holding a pretend bouquet of flowers saying, we love Him, we love Him, we love Him, we just love Him the way we want to love Him. They hate Jesus. They hate the Jesus of the Bible. And if they hate Him, then if you seek to glorify Him, they will hate you too. Nehemiah looked at the task before him. And he said, I don't care what comes. I will glorify my God. You get to glorify God in a unique role. You get to do it in a way that no one else can do it. You get to do it in a way that will glorify God like no one else in this entire place. We get to glorify God. And when someone rises up against us, we will not back down. Take up your arms. Because the world hates you. If you claim to know Christ, if you claim to glorify Him, the world hates you. They might hate you with a smile on their face or whatever it looks like. Take up arms and get ready. Because if you take this seriously, if you take this Christian walk seriously, it's going to hit you. Let me pray for us. Our band is going to play and we'll be dismissed. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. We thank you for the time we have to be together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book of Nehemiah and how it shows us some beautiful and some amazing realities and some truths that help us to understand even where we are in our life today. God, I pray that these students would love you, that they would desire above all else to glorify you, to make you famous and that, Father, they would not care for one instant who comes up against them, but they would recognize the gifts that you had given them, the talents, the abilities they have, the opportunities that you lay before them that no one else has, and they would go and they would do it, and, Father, they would do it with no reservations. Pray all these things in your Son's name, Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.